0: Hello, this is part nine of our series Eden to Zion, fostering a biblical worldview through the story of the Bible. Now, we've taken a three-part interlude between Genesis 2 and 3 to stand back and then focus systematically on the order of the cosmic kingdom. In part A, titled The Order of Yahweh, we turn to God's Attributes the names of God, the Trinity, and more, what we call theology proper. And then last time, in the mammoth part B, we turn to the order of the field. So in worldview language, the field of play is the total sum of reality, therefore, biblically, the heavens and the earth, which we contrasted with various uh, common worldviews, such as naturalism, Hinduism, Platonism, and how Christoplatonism has infected the church. We began with uh, God's dwelling place, how he rules from a real throne in a real temple in the heights of the heavens, uh, the nature of the cosmos, God's law and order, and how it penetrates all of the field of play. Um, Hopefully, we got clarity on hell, uh, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and the lake of fire. And we touched on God's providence before comparing worldviews. So today, in continuity of the worldview language, we're turning to the order of the players. So the players, or characters are those who play a part in the field or the stage of all things. Now I said this was gonna be three parts, uh, but actually it's going to be four because today we're going to exclusively concentrate on the invisible players. And I don't want to cheat us of, of our time in the study of angelology. So we're going to we're gonna ask, what are Angelic creatures, what is their purpose, their nature, their appearance, their rank and order? Uh, We'll take a look at the heavenly divine council, the origin of Satan and demons, their activity. Can Christians be possessed? And how should we relate to angels and more? And then next time we'll take a look at the human players, the order and the economy of man in part D. And then I promise we'll turn back to Genesis 3. So, first up then angels or should I say the order of the heavenly host. With creation we see God's divine order. He makes clear distinctions. Heavens, earth, light, darkness, day, night, land, waters, humans, animals, and man and woman etc. The host of heaven are no different they too are ordered and purposely distinct from all else and each other so what do we mean when we say the heavenly host well in part a we recognize one of the names of God as the Lord of hosts which occurs 261 times in the Old Testament hosts is a reference to the angelic armies of heaven when an angel told the shepherds in, in the field the good news about the birth of Messiah, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. That's Luke 3:13. David's psalm points to the order and purpose of the host. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers who do his will. In these verses and other examples, angels and the word host are distinguished, but angels make up or are at least included in the host of heaven, the armies of heaven. I think the reason they're highlighted is because they are the ones that interact with man. The host are under the authority of the one on the throne, all of whom obey God's word, and as ministers they do his will. Now, when I refer to the host of heaven, I'm referring to all the angelic creatures whose primary dwelling is in the company of God in the highest heaven. Equally, uh, sometimes when we use the word angels, Although not technically correct, we can be referring to all angelic creatures. I'll try to be more careful with my words today. So what are angelic creatures? Well, firstly, they are created beings, created within the six days at the beginning of history. Angelic creatures are not mentioned in the creation account because the earth and man ruling it are the focus. Yet the summary, the summary statement in, in chapter two hints at their creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Genesis 2, 1. Some point to the planets as the host of heaven, but as we've noted, host here is a reference to the army of angelic beings. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Ezra said, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. Nehemiah 9, 6. Job reveals something about the timing of their creation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 38, 4 and 7. The heavens were created on day one, expanded on day two, which included the heavenly dwelling, and then the earth was formed more fully on day three. It is possible then that they were created on day two or early on day three to witness the foundations of the earth being laid, rejoicing in God's work. Their creation at the beginning of history means that they've been around 6,000 years. They've seen everything, the timeline of history, the most parts of creation. They witnessed Adam eating the fruit, the global flood, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel. They, They witnessed Abraham leading his son up Mount Moriah the rise of joseph in egypt the red sea crossing the, the ten commandments given at sinai the babylonian siege jesus walking on water the crucifixion the rising of the dead the heavenly atonement everything they've seen it all i can imagine an angel sat at the back of church when the pastor says it was probably a local flood right and the angel's like yeah right here we go again I saw it cover the globe, right? Or the pastor's like, we're building the kingdom. And the angel's like, nope, (laughs) nope, no, you're not. You'll know when it comes. (laughs) Or the preacher's like, the universe is billions of years old and God used the process of millions of years of evolution. And the angel's like, well, you're sure speaking like a monkey. You know, you're speaking garbage. I mean, seriously, where did you get this guy from? I mean, what could God have written for you to just believe what it says right (laughs) now i'm sure they're not quite as carnal as that but you get the point it's worth thinking about they've seen it all their doctrine is far greater than ours now once created they live forever and they do not die now in terms of names we've seen they are called the sons of god indicating they are created directly from god and family in a sense. They are his heavenly family. They're referred to as his mighty ones, as powers, watchers, spirits, uh, holy ones, and gods, which we'll come on to. Like man, they have free will, or uh, as I prefer, free choice, uh, but are subject to God's will. The holy ones choose to respond immediately and joyously to carry out God's will they exercise moral judgment uh, and they're bound to god's universal law now being created means they have limits to their high intelligence their power their dominion and knowledge now in terms of nature and appearance well they are invisible spirits who do not have physical bodies as we do and jesus said for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that i have luke 24 39 they are invisible unless god opens our eyes to see them which he does on occasion they are not said to be made in the image of god like humans they neither marry nor bear children in their own image so in some angelic creatures then are created personal spiritual beings invisible to us who are highly intelligent they feel emotions with moral discernment and they have will now in terms of the different kinds of angelic creatures apart from angels proper which we'll come on to there are three main types of heavenly beings mentioned in the bible firstly cherubim a plural or cherub singular you can say cherubs but cherubim is is the correct plural now pictures of angelic creatures are often far removed from the biblical ones cherubim are not cute babies with a pair of wings right they're fierce servants that are associated with the presence of god and specifically the throne of god We remember from the previous session that Ezekiel 1 and 10 describe the cherubim. Ezekiel 1 calls them living creatures, describing them with four faces. A human face, the face of a lion on the right side. The fourth had the face of an ox on the left side and the face of an eagle. Each of them had four wings. Two wings touched wing of another Uh, two wings covered their bodies under their wings on their four sides they had human hands the legs were straight the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot they sparkled like burnished bronze their appearance was like burning coals of fire like torches moving to and fro they darted to and fro like lightning in ezekiel 10 these living creatures are identified as cherubim These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim." That's verse 20. In Ezekiel 10, the only difference is that the face of the ox is described as the face of a cherubim. We also learn that their wings are loud like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. In Ezekiel's vision they are key to the movement of the portable throne of Christ. In Psalm 18 David says the Lord rode on a cherub and flew. First Chronicles 28 speaks of the golden chariot of the cherubim. They are associated with the throne of God and chiefly the portable chariot throne. With four faces, they don't have to turn their heads to move in any direction. Their design helps with the movement of the portable throne and it means they can keep watch from any direction. On top of the Ark of the Covenant that God told the Israelites to build, there was what is called the Mercy Seat on which the two golden cherubim figures stood with their wings stretched out above it. This represented a place for the throne of God to dwell among them. Now, of course, these are not real cherubim, but the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat was designed to reflect the throne of God with its cherubim. For example, uh, 2 Samuel 6 says, The Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Isaiah 37, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Images of cherubim adorned the tabernacle and temple structures. They were woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. The walls and the doors of the temple would include carvings of cherubim. And the massive bronze basin between the altar and the temple would include images of cherubim. Also, the two 15-foot wooden cherubim that was overlaid with, with gold that filled and guarded the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple with, with wings covering the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Daniel Block shows that the cherubim in Ezekiel's visions and the cherubim over the ark differ. There were two cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. In Ezekiel's visions there were four and they had two wings over the Ark of the Covenant whereas Ezekiel's visions they had four wings. Uh, We're unsure of the form of the face uh, and was it just one face in the the Ark of the Covenant whereas Ezekiel's visions clearly four faces which is an ox, a human, a lion, and an eagle. The location for the Ark of the Covenant is the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and outside of the temple in Ezekiel's vision. Uh, The state of the, uh, the cherubim was static for the Ark of the Covenant and infinitely mobile in Ezekiel's visions, but they are both, they both function as the bearer of the invisible throne of Yahweh. Now, having said that, in the descriptions of the cherubim made for the Ark of the Covenant and the huge ones that stood over it in the Holy of Holies, it doesn't actually say they have two wings or they have one face. It simply says that their face is pointed towards each other, which at first reads sounds like... Like they had one face. Uh, But I don't think it excludes the possibility of each having four faces. It doesn't describe the the face or faces. Again, in the description from Exodus 25, 37, uh, 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 8, it, it does seem as though they have two wings, but it doesn't say that they do. They could have four. Now, while most depictions of the Ark of the Covenant are kind of two winged, one faced creatures, I've seen an 18th century drawing with uh, cherubim like Ezekiel's visions. Now perhaps they are the same, perhaps the more static thrones on earth and in heaven have a cherubim with one face and two wings, and God's portable throne utilises a different type of cherubim with four faces and four wings, and four of them as opposed to two. As we will soon discover, the cherubim are given the, the, the task of guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. In the video, The Garden of God, we noted the possibility of the cherubim anointing Adam Right, referring to Ezekiel 28, and witnessing the wedding ceremony. So in summary, the cherubim are mentioned 91 times in the Old Testament, just once in the New Testament, and they are mighty guardians of God's sacred spaces. Now, seraphim, seraphim means fiery ones, right? In his commentary on Isaiah, John Oswald says that seraphim, is a term elsewhere applied to serpents some scholars believe that they were serpentine or dragon-like in appearance now the only mention is in isaiah 6 1-7 we remember that this too was a vision of a prelude messiah incarnate as king Above the Lord, sitting upon a throne, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory so the cherubim are under the lord and the seraphim are over the lord they are covered with their wings it says feet but it can mean their their whole body so they appear just as all wings with the sound of worship in symphony with each other like a kind of fitting canopy of praise over the lord enthroned and one would fly over to isaiah and purify his lips with a burning coal isaiah said Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, there are also various kinds of heavenly beings. There are what is called living creatures around the heavenly throne. Now, in Ezekiel 1, the prophet referred to living creatures and later labeled them cherubim. Now, in Revelation, John sees creatures he calls living creatures, and they remain unclassified. Again, they have features like the earthly variety Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's Revelation 4, 6-8. to Revelation 5 tells us that they worship with harps and it's these angelic creatures that hold golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Here though, each creature does not have four faces like the cherubim, but each one has a different face. And moreover, they have six wings like the seraphim rather than four or two like the cherubim. So these aren't cherubim or seraphim unless they're kind of classed in a broader category of one of them. These are four distinguishable creatures possibly always found together in fours, but different from each other in facial appearance. These living creatures announced the arrival of the four horses in Revelation 6. And what's more, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God in Revelation 15, 7. So they worship in song, they declare God's holiness, they fall down before God's throne, they announce events, they're part of the liturgy and activity of the heavenly temple. Perhaps there are more heavenly living creatures that have not been revealed. Not every animal is mentioned in the Bible and no doubt many more of the heavenly host have not been revealed. In 2 Kings 2 and 6 we read about how God opened the eyes of Elijah and Elisha and they could see heavenly horses and chariots of fire. Now aside from that, we have identified uh, one or two types of cherubim, uh, the seraphim, uh, four different living creatures that seem to be categorised together and now we will turn to angels. So that would be seven or eight different creatures possibly categorised into four broader creature kinds. Angels proper. The word angel comes from the Greek angelos, meaning messenger. Uh, malak, the, the Hebrew equivalent to means messenger. So when you read the translation angel, it's either malak in the Old Testament or angelos in the New Testament, both referring to heavenly messengers. Uh, Their name indicates their purpose, at least in relation to man. They are called holy angels, angels of God, mighty angels. They are referred to as angels in heaven and Jesus calls them his angels. The author of Hebrews says uh, that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. All angelic creatures, including angels proper, minister to God by glorifying him. They serve God and they serve man. In Daniel 4, angels are called watchers. So Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of a watcher, a holy one who came down from heaven. They have the authority to speak the decrees of God, bringing commands and revelation to man. This Hebrew word can be translated as watcher, an angelic watcher, or guardian, or sentinel. Uh, Paul Tanner says that the, the NIV's translation messenger fails to retain the important nuance of the word. He says most likely it is related to a Hebrew verb, meaning to awaken, to arouse oneself. The common translation watcher denotes their their interest in the affairs of man, right? They keep watch as guards over the earth. The book of Zechariah describes angels that patrol the earth and they report their findings to the angel of the Lord. So they keep watch, they patrol and report to the heavenly throne. They observe Christian order, work and suffering. And so Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. In 1 Corinthians, he says, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So angels learn about God through the activity and response of the church. To summarise their purpose and activity, angels deliver messages and decrees from heaven's throne to earth. They are to guard us and protect us. They deliver judgments from god they bring answers to prayer they assist in winning people to christ like the angel who directed philip to the ethiopian eunuch who uh, received christ and was baptized they escort spirits on death to Sheol, hades under the earth and carry or carefully lead the righteous spirits to the heavenly paradise and they encourage the apostles and um, they will be part of announcing the second coming when Jesus returns with his angels in the glory of his father it says in Matthew 16 27 they serve God and sing praise and worship him we're told there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents They are present when we worship and they worship with us. In a similar way that we long to look at the heavenly abode, Peter said that angels long to look at the subsequent glories. 1 Peter 1, the restoration of the earth. They're excited to see God fulfill his promises to man. They glorify God when they witness his redemptive plans play out and how much more should we? So how many angels exist? Well, let's first ask, do each of us have guardian angels? If not as adults, what about children? Well, the term guardian angel does not appear in scripture, yet the concept can result from the words of Jesus. So in Matthew 18:10, he said, "'See that you do not despise one of these little ones, "'for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. Was Jesus referring just to the immediate children around him or perhaps all Jewish children who are under the covenant? Or does he mean angels uh, keep watch over a kind of area of children rather than an individual basis? Or is it a universal statement about guardian angels for, for all children or perhaps all people? When an angel rescued Peter from a prison cell, he went to the disciples who were who were gathered at the house of Mary, the, the mother of John Mark. And a servant girl named Rhoda heard uh, Peter's voice over, over the gate. And recognising Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. That's Acts 12, 14 to 15. Now some propose they believe Peter had his own personal guardian angel but the passage doesn't explicitly say that. It's referring to the angel protecting him at that time. Um, There is Old Testament support for guardian angels so Psalm 91 says that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. This is the passage that Satan quotes to Jesus when tempting him in the desert. And then uh, after the temptation, angels came and were ministering to him. I don't think we can be conclusive, but it seems possible that each one of us, at least before we reach physical maturity and possibly followers of Jesus, have a guardian angel now that doesn't mean that children and believers won't ever be harmed but it means that they would be watched over report back to hq and step in if ordered to if this is the case it means there must be billions of angels if you consider too that 60 million people die each year i mean that's a lot of funerals to prepare for a lot of spirits to carry to heaven or usher to sheol The Bible does speak of innumerable angels in festal gathering in Hebrews 12. In a scene in Revelation 5, it says there are angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. That's at least a hundred million then, right? So millions, very possibly billions. It wouldn't be an arbitrary number. It would be a precise number to fulfill God's purposes, taking into account that some would fall away. In terms of their appearance, very often angels are depicted as female or feminine, aren't they? But from the Bible, we see only male names given to them, or they're described as appearing like men in male form. And this is important, and we'll come back to it in another session. The next time you read a children's Bible story, you'll clock the inaccuracy of angelic images. They don't have wings and non-mentioned are female. They appear as human men. Now, some examples throughout history include uh, Genesis 18, whereby three angels appeared to Abraham as three men Uh, one of the angels is actually the angel of the lord the pre-incarnate jesus he comes to uh, to abraham as an angel a messenger of the father in heaven a messenger of yahweh the difference of course the angels proper are not yahweh whereas the angel of the lord is yahweh a messenger from yahweh the son delivering a message from the father then uh, the two angels proper rescue lot from sodom and and Gomorrah before its destruction. Uh, Jacob uh, met angels on his travels and he saw them in dreams ascending and descending on a ladder up to uh, heaven. Daniel said, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, Daniel 6, 22. Two angels are mentioned by name. Michael is given the title great prince in the book of Daniel. Uh, the, the angel Gabriel delivered messages to Daniel. Again, he is described having the appearance of a man in Daniel 8. The same Gabriel delivered messages regarding the birth of John the Baptist and jesus to john's father zachariah he said i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news luke 1 19. on the morning after the resurrection we read and behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it matthew 28 there are plenty of examples Now, there is an order and rank to the host of heaven. Now, some have proposed a nine-level hierarchy of the heavenly host as follows. The highest or first order has the seraphim, then the cherubim, then thrones, then the middle or second order, dominions, then virtues, and then powers, and then the lowest order or third order, principalities, archangels, and then angels. But the scriptures do not say that that is the order. Colossians 1.16 is the classic choice of reference. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him I would agree with FF Bruce who says that in all five classes of angel princes seem to be distinguished in the New Testament throne, principalities, authorities, powers, and dominions these probably represent the highest orders of the angelic realm but the variety of ways in which the terms are combined in the new testament warns us against any attempt to reconstruct a fixed hierarchy from them the point that paul is making is that is that all these uh, in invisible powers were created through him and for him and are subject to Christ. The Bible uh, does speak of archangels such as uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Michael is the only archangel named in in scripture in Jude 9. Archangels uh, will be in charge of an army of angels who are under their authority. The Bible gives the impression that each nation is assigned an archangel. So Daniel 12 says, Michael the great prince who has charge of your people or who stands guard over your nation. Michael is the archangel over Israel. Now, Deuteronomy indicates that angels are appointed to manage the nations. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, Deuteronomy 32, 8. I would guess there are 70 archangels assigned to the nations. There are possibly spirits of a lesser order as well. No doubt the order in heaven is exemplary. Every angelic being knowing their place, submitting accordingly between each other and all under the authority of God. Angels are said to be above all creatures, including mankind. We could think that angels are valued more than man, but this is false. The future world is not for, for angels it's for humans for it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking says in hebrews 2:5, christ did not die on the cross for the angels now as part of the heavenly order the scriptures allude to a divine council god elohim has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods Elohim, him he holds judgment that psalm 82 the first verse now divine counsel is the translation of the esv it is translated as great assembly in the niv uh, the divine assembly the berean study bible the congregation of the mighty uh, the king james um, his assembly in the nasb i agree with derek kidner when he says the word counsel is misleading here the old testament does use the term to speak vividly of god's sharing his thoughts with his servants but here the word is simply assembly now at first glance it appears an assembly of heavenly hosts before god as he makes judgments now michael heiser for me makes a meal of the word gods the hebrew is elohim the same word used for god and because more often than not it is plural uh, the use of the word is translated as gods Now, if gods in this psalm is referring to angelic creatures, it is doing so because they are spirits, right? The Bible is not kind of painting a picture of many real gods as we typically understand the word uh, before the kind of true God, as if there's some kind of like hierarchy of gods. The Bible is polemically uh, anti-polytheistic. We remember that the the disembodied Samuel that that was brought up from Sheol was referred to as a god it's the same hebrew word elohim but of course we don't recognize samuel as a god it's his spiritual and invisible properties that would likely have been referred to the same with angelic creatures idols and demons are referred to as false gods elohim so spiritual beings are sometimes referred to as gods in english with a small g Psalm 89, which is often connected with Psalm 82 uh, and used to, to assist in its interpretation, is clear in that, in that there is an assembly before God that cannot be compared to him. It says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all who are around him, Psalm 89.5. to 7. The author of Hebrews underlines this point too and to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So gods or sons of God angels can be synonymous. Now having said that i'm not convinced psalm 82 is referring to the heavenly host and here's why let me build the picture it's not apparent in the esv but the hebrew actually says that god is standing not sitting before this assembly in the heavenly scene in in daniel 7 we recall the ancient of days is seated and in revelation 4 he is seated before the 24 elders who we identified as human representatives of israel whereas um On earth, for example, Joseph, as a foreshadow of Messiah, had a dream whereby he rose and stood before his brothers, who represent the tribes of Israel, and they bowed to him. Secondly, as Kidna points out in in Psalm 82, this company is present to be judged, not consulted. This is not a congregation who are assisting God in judgment. They are being judged. Now, the book of Numbers and Joshua mention the congregation of the Lord, the congregation of of the law, Joshua 22 and Numbers 27. There are also several other references in which the parties in legal procedures are directed to come before God. Isaiah 3 has a similar passage where God stands to judge peoples. He judges the, the elders and the princes of his people because they devoured the vineyard. They took the spoil of the poor, crushing my people. They have judged unjustly in psalm 82 god stands in the midst of the assembly or congregation who are being judged because they judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked and therefore like men adam you shall die and fall like any prince arise o god judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations now you could argue like men must mean they are not men, right? therefore angelic beings. Or it is simply saying, like all men, like all princes before you, you will die. On the other hand, uh, angels don't die, uh, and therefore it points to men, although you could argue that angels are destined for the same punishment like men in the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Um, Now, I'm just trying to be fair to, to both positions here. For me, it sounds like he is judging the leaders of Israel. So how do we count the people of Israel, or at least its leaders, as gods? A second time within Psalm 82, it says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Well, God said to Moses about his brother Aaron, He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God, Elohim, to him that's exodus four sixteen and exodus 7 1 says and the lord said to moses see i have made you like god elohim to pharaoh and your brother aaron shall be your prophet god the most high called moses a god of the people of israel he is god by proxy he is the representative of god and in light of this perhaps the medium at endor who referred to samuel as god not not only because because he was in this kind of disembodied spiritual form but he's referring to his leadership of israel right one of the gods he's referring to him as one of the princes of israel one of the gods there are several other examples too of uh, men usually who are appointed as judge who are uh, referred to as god but we are missing a key piece in our interpretation. Now, what I find remarkable is that in Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, it is centred around, or at least begins with the hook of Psalm 82, triggering discussion on, on the word gods. But the entire work fails to address the Gospel of John chapter 10, reducing it to a footnote on page 26. Eight. Why John chapter ten? Because Jesus quotes Psalm eighty-two and identified the gods as those to whom the Word of God came. Now, whether he means uh, the prophets, the leaders who received the scriptures, beginning at Sinai, or he's referring to himself as the Word became flesh, and therefore gods would apply to even those that he's speaking speaking with. And um, either way, he's saying. It it is the people of Israel, right? Hear the full passage from, from verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That's John 10, 31 to 39. Context matters. This is at the the Feast of Dedication, right? In the temple and the Jews, uh, which no doubt included some of the leaders, are about to stone him. So Jesus quotes Psalm 82, effectively saying that, if God called even the sinful leaders of Israel gods because the word of God came to them to steward and to deliver justice on behalf of God, then how can you charge me, who is sent from the Father, to deliver the word of God, who is the word of God, in the flesh, who will carry out true justice with blasphemy, right? simply for saying, I am the son of God. Right? And what Jesus is doing here is incredibly clever. He's using scriptural logic to make it near impossible for them to charge him with blasphemy because his time is not yet to die. And at the same time, he's affirming that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He's not downplaying his deity. He is disabling his opponent's wrists. In truth, in part, it seems that Psalm 82 is is a kind of prophecy of these jewish leaders gathering around him to, to judge him and, and he stands before this assembly <laughs> but he exposes their arguments almost as a kind of f- a kind of foreshadow of the future judgment in reverse but i digress what he is saying wouldn't seem to make sense if he's referring to the heavenly host as god's Right? Ramsey Michaels points out that in Jewish tradition, the uh, Babylonian, uh, Talmud, the, the Midrash, the Targums uh, and other literature, he says they frequently applied Psalm 82 to Israel as a whole by virtue of Israel's election and reception of the law at Mount Sinai. Still, others conclude picking heavenly or human gods uh, would be a false dichotomy. They see a merger of both heavenly and human beings um, being judged. Now scholars are divided on this. Jesus' interpretation persuades me to believe that Psalm 82 does not refer to a divine council of the heavenly host in the heights of the heaven. Now, having said that, uh, we have previously recognised the heavenly court that includes angelic creatures. In, uh, in 1 Kings 22, King Ahab is an evil king who took a note somewhat of Elijah, but he still surrounds himself with hundreds of manipulative false prophets. And now uh, the prophet Micaiah confronts him. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. First Kings 22, 19 to 23. Unlike Psalm 82, the Lord is seated on his throne and he asks which of the angelic creatures will intervene to steer the events ahead, to entice, meaning to persuade Ahab. And here we see uh, God giving the angelic creatures a choice. Perhaps there's, there's an order between them and God's asking you know, who's next up in line, or it's just totally open to all it's it's a choice uh, that there's some kind of dialogue takes place and then one spirit comes forward and God gives this spirit the freedom to decide by what means he will accomplish the task and God's word finalizes the mission declaring it will be successful this lying spirit must be an evil angel who God uses against evil Ahab it's an exceedingly intriguing uh, heavenly court scene that opens a window into what takes place now without kind of drifting off into the subject of how god's sovereignty works the false prophets they want to deliver deceitful words so ahab wants to believe deceitful words their hearts are set the spirit directs the lying tongues to persuade ahab to go into battle which led to his death remember god does not tempt he does not lie nor directly cause sin Harry Shields explains in a mysterious way God governed and and ordained this event without himself producing it as a direct immediate cause. Instead he brought to fruition the episode as the indirect ultimate cause and the false prophets who were responsible for their own moral deeds are blamed for the guilt of their actions not God. God didn't necessarily require a deceitful spirit for the task. Shield says uh, the deceiving spirits provides a theological layer between God and the false prophets. He chooses to use, to include holy angels in his ruling of the cosmic kingdom. He gives permission, even uses evil angels to accomplish his purposes. The heavenly hosts are there to, to witness decrees, to affirm decrees, but not making the top level decisions some connect daniel 4 with the angelic council as i've mentioned in daniel 4 angels are referred to as watchers in nebuchadnezzar's vision of this kind of great tree that reached the heavens we read a watcher a holy one came down from heaven he proclaimed aloud and said thus chop down the tree and then announces that nebuchadnezzar would become like a beast for seven periods of time The key verse is 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men let me read scholar paul tanner's thoughts he says this seems to refer to an angelic council that stood before yahweh god the NET's translation by the decree of the sentinels by the pronouncement of the holy ones would signify that the angels merely announced the heavenly decision other translations e.g the nasb's the decision is a command of the holy ones would indicate that the angels somehow may have been involved in the making of the decree. The the latter part of verse 17 tends to favour the former idea. The decision was God's and the angels concurred with the divine decree and this is the understanding of most commentators Uh, we've just seen haven't we from uh, first kings 22 that god uh, sometimes gives freedom to the angels as to how they may uh, you know go about fulfilling the mission uh, but ultimately all decrees are from god and the results of the mission are so that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men for the divine counsel then psalm 82 i lean towards the assembly of the gods as the human leaders of israel administrators of global blessings for psalm 89 is is referring to an assembly of of the heavenly host probably equivalent to a council or court but the point of the verse uh, that kind of interrupts the psalm is that god is above all Uh, marvin tate says that yahweh's cosmic ruleship is one marked by the praise of the heavenly beings and two characterized by his faithfulness right we're not given any other Information in that psalm, and then we have First Kings 22, uh, certainly the most uh, kind of intriguing interaction of God with His angels. But here uh, we have both holy and evil angels um, in, in a kind of court scene. Genesis 1:26, we've mentioned in video four, is not referring to the heavenly council uh, to a heavenly court. not going to go there Uh, there are other verses too such as such jeremiah 23 18 that says for who among them has stood in the council of the lord to see and hear his word The chapter doesn't give us any other information about what takes place and actually this may not be referring to the heavenly council. In context, the prophet Jeremiah is saying that he stands before the Lord and hears his word. J.A. Thompson says it is the circle of those who are privy to the deep purposes of Yahweh and are in his confidence. There are less passages than we tend to think. You know, if you're writing a book or an article on the Heavenly Council, you're going to project that picture on every possible illusion. You know, for me, whatever passage I look at, you know, I'll read plenty of in-depth commentaries on it, listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling me, and then whatever the result go with it you know whether it rocks our thought process our programs our projects you know and I'm sure everyone's trying to do that but it just seems sometimes we're trying to write something new now we're going to come on to Job 1 and 2 and um, what we are sure of is the angels appear on on the left and the right of the throne in heaven. There seems to be some sort of divine council although I'm not kind of thrilled with that term it suggests something that, that isn't obvious in the text but the host of heaven are the sons of God they're watchers and they form an assembly in the temple of God uh, like the scene of the 24 elders pictured in the eschaton. Um, the angelic beings are there to a and to witness the decrees of god and take on his missions god speaks to them as administrators of the heavenly paradise and their involvement on earth now angels they know their place they're careful not to make judgment even against uh, the wicked peter tells us angels though great in might and power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the lord their pronouncements and activity is always within the scope of god's mission god doesn't need to use them but he chooses to use them he doesn't he doesn't need us for evangelism but he chooses to use us they are they're not hesitant to act they do not overstep their position of authority so that's the heavenly council Uh, we've spent perhaps more time than I initially planned, Uh, but it's just because so much has been written about it in the popular arena at the moment, so I felt like we had to address it and perhaps tone down some of the hype. The fall of the angelic creatures. Now, we spoke about the probation period for Adam in the Garden of God video, and angels too would go through a probationary period. They were given the choice of acting according to or contrary to God's word, their calling and design before being verified as holy or declared unholy, a vast gulf between good and evil angelic creatures. Now, once a certain angels had sinned, there would be no coming back. They would eternally harden their hearts toward God. The righteous angels who chose to obey God would be stamped as holy and they would be eternally empowered to remain righteous. It was a short, one-time probation period at the end of which a one-time event of declaring the status of the angels since then battles between holy angels and fallen angels continue so what happened well for the fall of satan most would turn to ezekiel 28 and isaiah 14 in the garden of god video around the 57 minute mark onwards I, I made the case that neither of these chapters refer to the fall of Satan, but rather Adam and his fall. Now, if so, it means our typically regurgitated messages about Satan's original states, what took place, what made him rebel. Many of these things are not truly flowing from the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to go through these chapters again, but briefly and firstly, Ezekiel 28 We talk about the original beauty and wisdom of Satan because of the lines such that say he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty and because of the dazzling pectoral arrayed with costly jewels but as I've argued I believe this was Adam not Satan. We say that Satan is wiser than Daniel no secret is hidden from him but it's not about Satan. Because it says your heart was proud because of your beauty, we say that it was Satan's pride that triggered the events. And some will reach as far back as uh, verse 2. And because this individual said to himself, I am a god, we say that Satan declared himself god. Now, some will refer to Satan's original status as a guardian cherub. And his role was to guard Eden, and specifically the garden where he was placed. But he failed in his duties, except... He's not a cherub, right? And this was Adam's role, not Satan's, nor the cherub. (laughs) In Isaiah 14, we we call Satan Lucifer, right? Because it's a Latin translation of Morning Star in verse 12. Except this isn't referring to Satan. The great expositors of the Reformation didn't believe so. Yet we still continually beat this drum that before his fall, he was called Lucifer. There appears to be a disconnect between uh, pastors and scholars on this. I would say that the the vast majority of pastors turn to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 regarding Satan's fall, fall. but the majority of quality, in-depth commentaries I've studied detach Satan from these chapters. So what do we know? Well, we know it was springtime. Uh, The heavens and the earth were created in in the spring, according to God's calendar, Um, and the fall happened sometime after. What we don't what we don't do is we don't say, well, we can't throw out Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 because then we'd be left with nothing. Well, so be it, right? We shouldn't just hold on to teaching that is in error because we haven't got anything else. Now, Satan's beauty probably was astounding. I'm sure, you know, he did want to be his own God. It will have been pride that triggered his downfall, but we can't directly connect it to these passages to these chapters or what we can do is we can identify a pattern from the bible of those who rebel especially those who began well but finished badly and we could even turn to to adam's fall in genesis 3 even ezekiel 28 and isaiah 14 and wonder how satan and other angels turn from god no doubt he desired to be god and and not to be a servant of god when did the fall occur? Well, angels sang when God created the world, according to Job 38, and God declared everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good on the sixth day. And Therefore, it must have been sometime after the creation week. Now, if demons were causing chaos during the creation week, it would be impossible for God to call it very good. We learn from John's letters that the devil has been sinning from the beginning first john 3 8. so anywhere between day one of the second week of history to the episode of the serpent in the garden in genesis 3. what did take place well the fall of the angels was led by satan and revelation 12 4 indicates that a third of the angels followed him was there a kind of specific event that kick-started his rebellion was satan as the serpent breaking his probation in that very moment In judging the serpent in Genesis 3, was the Lord also at that point declaring him unholy? Some questions will go unanswered, but there must have been an initial trigger. And based on how God judges publicly before all, I believe a formal judgment before the throne of God in heaven would have taken place. Uh, When the short probation period was up, they would be rounded up, presented before the throne of God and declared unholy before all the heavenly host. They would no longer have the capacity to become holy and righteous. The division between the holy angels and the evil angels was eternally set. Um, Now, could this have included other angelic creatures such as cherubim and seraphim? Uh, Possibly, as they have free choice, to sin results in being exiled from serving God. They would lose rights and privileges to uh, general the, the general dwelling in in the in the heavenly paradise, and they would be cast to earth where they would spend the better part of their time. They are deemed unfit for purpose. Instead of guarding, they transgress and encourage transgression. Rather than protecting, they abuse and encourage abuse. This is what we call the fall of the angels. Now the word fall is perhaps uh, not the best choice of words. They didn't stumble out of their heavenly abode or or stumble by accident out of position and relationship with God. Right? They chose to dig a ditch, so to speak, and God pushed them into it. Okay, what we call Satanology. Satan initially shows up as a serpent in the garden and goes by several names. Revelation 20 lists four of them. The dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan is speaking of the same individual. The serpent refers to his seduction the dragon refers to his persecution he's also referred to as the evil one beelzebul the prince of the power of the air and a father of those who follow him satan tempted job he incited david he accuses zachariah he tempted jesus he possessed judas and he will possess the final antichrist jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies satan knows the bible from memory and will quote it twist it and has corrupted his mind so deeply that he's deluded to the point he thinks he can escape his hellish fate now in the Oliver discourse jesus referred to the devil and his angels so uh, he is the head of fallen angels hence the attention the bible draws on his activity and ultimate crushing DEMONOLOGY Now, Traditionally, demons are fallen angels who rebelled against God and continue to rebel and revel in evil. Demons are referred to as angels of Satan and described as lying spirits, as evil spirits or unclean spirits. Scripture relates idol worship to worship of demons. The fact that demons believe means that rebellion has nothing to do with proof of God, but rather the heart's desire. They are enemies of God. Now, some speculate that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, who are arguably fallen angel and human hybrids, demonoids, if you like. So Genesis 6 says, Sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. If the sons of God are fallen angels, which I believe they are, when their hybrid offspring died, the spirits were then referred to as demons, so the theory goes. Now this is drawn from the book of Enoch, but it cannot be derived explicitly from scripture, so we must be cautious. I'd steer away from that suggestion. I think all fallen angels from the beginning can be referred to as demons. Now the Bible depicts spirits that can enter the body. We don't know much about them, for good reason. If they enter the body, they can cause physical ailments uh, such as epilepsy, blindness or, uh, for example, muteness. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. That's Matthew 9, 32-33. Demons can make people appear superhuman, such as the man in Matthew 5. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And then in verse 9, Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion for we are many." So demons have names, and in this case, a name is given to many demons grouped together as an army that explains the force in this man. Jesus cast them out into 2,000 pigs, revealing this man was possessed by thousands of demons, after which he was in his right mind. Now, it doesn't mean that all physical ailments are, are caused by demons, but some are. Then there is uh, the example of a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling, says in Acts 16. In his rebellion, King Saul was troubled by an evil spirit which changed his mood. Demons can influence a sinner to do even more evil, such as Satan who entered into Judas. Sin, particularly habitual sin, is what opens a door to demons to dwell within. Dark magic, the occult, cultish communities, and idol worship will open the door to demons. And we'll come back to this. Just as the holy angels make up an orderly army with hierarchy, all reporting to the throne in heaven, Satan has set up a counter-army with hierarchy to control areas of land, groups of people, all reporting back to Satan who has set up his throne on earth. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says Pergamon, which is modern-day Turkey, is where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. He is addressing the church of Pergamon, the centre of pagan worship in what was known as Asia Minor of the first century, uh, but these letters find eschatological fulfilment. The point of information is not, it's not thrown in for padding. Right? Jesus wants us to know that Satan's throne is in Pergamon. In the illustrative reconstruction on the screen, you can see that Satan inspired a temple dedicated to himself. Now, he may reposition himself geographically throughout history, conceivably returning to Pergamon or at least the same geographical nation in the final years of this age. There is evidence that Satan has moved his throne. Believe it or not, there is the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Now, in 1901, Germany transported the ruins of the altar, leaving behind the foundations of Pergamon, to Berlin, and there they reconstructed the Altar of Zeus, Satan by proxy, and Turkey agreed the altar, or at least the capstones of it, would become the property of Germany, and in 1930, the Pergamon Museum opened. Adolf Hitler had nothing to do with the initial move, Satan did, but years later, Hitler's chief architect, Albert Speer, used the Altar of Pergamon as the model to design the colossal grandstand, right? Zeppelin Tribune, right, with within the kind of Nazi parade grounds in Nuremberg. Hitler called for rallies at night with beams of vertical light a mile high, like columns of a great cathedral, as they swore a holy oath to Germany. In fact, this effect was known as the Cathedral of Light. For 12 years, they would show a propaganda film called The Triumph of the Will that betrayed Hitler as a messiah. It was here that Hitler would announce laws to accomplish his final solution that meant the Holocaust. Holocaust stems from a Greek word meaning a holy burnt animal sacrifice. He ended his rule in Berlin, the city of the stones of the altar of Satan, the capital of the Third Reich. From the throne of Satan of Pergamum where burnt sacrifices were offered to Zeus to transporting the altar to Berlin and a remodelled version in Nuremberg for Hitler to call for six million Jews to be burnt. But God quickly put an end to his satanic thousand-year Reich. Berlin with its wall would become the gateway between communism and relative freedom. It would seem then that Satan moves his throne throughout history to inspire and to empower wicked cities and brutal empires. whether Babel or, or, or the Babylon of Iraq or Rome who Peter referred to as Babylon or Pergamum, the Ottoman Empire and mystery Babylon to come, he sets himself at the center of sinful activity and worship. Israel was the door to the Judeo-Christian faith. Pergamum was the door to a pantheon of false gods and corrupted theology. And one day Satan will attempt to set up his throne in the Holy Land via the false prophets and Antichrist. Their goal is to disrupt God's redemptive purposes and distort God's order. Satan inspired false religions, cults, and religious texts weaving truth with lie to confuse and to lead astray. He's inspired witchcraft and the occult. He's the master of counterfeits, counterfeit religion, counterfeit messiah, counterfeit millennial reign. He's twisted the meaning of the zodiac. Satan is behind the false gods of Baal and Molech and Dagon and Diana and so forth. He's inspired ancient mythology with its gods and goddesses. Hercules was said to be half man, half God. This is Satan twisting the narrative of Messiah. But Jesus, the true Messiah, is fully God, fully man. He's in music, he's in theatre, he's in philosophy, he's in the economy, he's in pseudoscience. They've been around for 6,000 years, they've seen everything, and they know every trick in the book, and they've accumulated knowledge of all history, and therefore they can predict the outcome of events more accurately than the limited experience of man. Now, the same number of angels and demons exist today, plus the, the spirits of the Nephilim, with the same activity today than ever, possibly a more angelic activity in Israel of both holy and evil. They continually work to ruin God's plans and his people, to derail the promises of God being fulfilled through lies and murder and deception, to enslave them, to cause affirmity, to blind people from the gospel. Paul says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why can't they see what you see? They are blinded to the obvious and we must pray that God opens their eyes. Now, Israel is the focus of their attack. If they can't get to the king, they go after his people. Satan seduced the first Adam but failed to seduce the second Adam. And throughout history, Satan attempted to extinguish the seed of Messiah. If you can't now get to the second Adam, you go for his children. Israel is central to the biblical narrative because it is through them that Messiah works to restore the earth. And for this reason, they have been attacked throughout history and will continue to be attacked, climaxing at the end of the age. But Messiah will come to save them. Persecution comes to the Jew first and then Gentile Christians. Now, Satan and his demons battle the holy angels. Deuteronomy tells us that when Moses died, no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now, Jude adds that the, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Did the devil want the body to possess it and then to speak lies, or inspire an ungodly shrine, or who knows? The angel Gabriel, who spoke to the exiled Daniel, said, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of their chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Daniel 10.13. Here we have a demon referred to as the Prince of Persia, a powerful demon over the nation who would not allow the angel Gabriel to visit Daniel. And then the archangel Michael, however, comes to rescue him and to send him on his way to deliver the message. Michael also oversees an army of angels who are prepared to fight in the heavens. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now last time we saw that holy angels are in charge of Sheol and they will throw Satan in there for the millennial reign. So we gather that Satan has a network throughout the world, demons stationed over nations and cities and towns and so forth and God has corresponding angels. They are self-ordered to mess with the order of the cosmic kingdom. They can't mess with the heavenly kingdom so they battle in the mid-heavens and spend most of the time messing with world order. If a third of the angels followed him the good news is that two-thirds are on God's side our side let's look at Job 1 and 2 the book of Job offers insight into God's dealings with Satan we begin with verse 6 in the first chapter now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them Now, firstly, here we see that evil angels must present themselves before the Lord periodically to give an account of their activities. Now, John Hartley says that the Targum, uh, the Targum is the the Aramaic translation with rabbinical notes, identifies the time of the first meeting with New Year's Day. Now, though fallen angels spend the best part of their time on Earth, or battling in the mid-heavens, they do have access before God in the heights of the heavens when requested. Now, secondly, Satan here has the article, the Satan. So as Hartley puts it, it functions as a title rather than a personal name. The Hebrew root means to oppose the law. On this basis, he says, some scholars conjecture that Satan may be the prosecuting attorney of the heavenly council. However, in these scenes, He's not what we might typically think of as a a kind of court prosecutor, more more like a trouble causer or an accuser or adversary. He isn't just kind of feeding back the sins of men, but he's stirring up chaos in the kingdoms. And it continues, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? That's verse 7 to 12. This is before the assembly in the temple and Yahweh asks Satan to give an account and Satan responds by suggesting that he's been searching the earth for disloyalty to Yahweh. Now, Yahweh brings job to his attention to show that man can live blamelessly and fear him regardless of circumstance and satan claims that that job's response to god is is for selfish game and that he would recant if his possessions were taken from him so yahweh gives him permission over job's possessions but not over his body his body at least his life belongs to yahweh satan is limited uh, by god's permission he thinks he's he's clever by causing harm yet he is an apparatus of god's testing and he's proved wrong and job will receive greater rewards in heaven anyway in the kingdom to come so uh, chapter 2 begins with a similar session in heaven again there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them to present himself before the lord Hartley adds that the Targum identifies the second session with the Day of Atonement. So if so, at least twice a year, in spring and autumn, they must present themselves before the Lord in heaven according to the Jewish calendar, God's calendar. It continues almost identically to chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, "'From where have you come?' Satan answered the Lord and said, "'From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it.' And the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth?' A blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason and then satan answered the lord and said skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face and the lord said to satan behold he is in your hand only spare his life so satan went out from the presence of the lord and struck job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head By Yahweh saying, you incited me against him to destroy him, he is charging Satan with incitement, agreeing that Satan persuaded him, but in doing so, Yahweh takes full credit for Job's trouble. Yahweh, as judge, is careful not to concede any of his authority to Satan. Hartley says that this point is crucial, for in the dialogue, Job will seek deliverance From Yahweh alone, and rightly so, for he has no battle with Satan. Satan incited without reason. Job feared God without reason of circumstance. He loved and feared God regardless. And we can learn a lot from Job and from the book of Job. Now it's helpful to remind ourselves that Satan and his angels are not omnipresent. They, like any individual, can only be in one place at any one time. Satan relies on demons to report the world's affairs so that he can plan his next moves. God chooses to use angels, but he sees everything in real time before it's reported and knows precisely what happens next. Satan always plays into God's hands. So while they cause carnage they inflict hurt they they influence abuse they tempt into wickedness they sow lies the devil and his angels are limited in power authority and ultimately subjected to the king of the universe yes they are powerful and dangerous but they can do nothing without the permission of god now we recall that some angels are kept in sheol hades for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, Hades, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 2 Peter 2 4. The initial probation and sentencing to Sheol, Hades, for some of the angels demonstrates God's great patience and grace with man. Now, why are some angels kept in prison of of Sheol, Hades, until judgment? Well, Jude offers some understanding. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The best explanation that I've come across is that here in Jude and the apocryphal literature point to the angels that procreated with women to bring forth demonoids, therefore refusing to stay within their boundaries. God then cut short their time on the surface of the earth and bound them within the heart of the earth within Sheol, Hades. Now it may not be limited to those angels could other angelic creatures such as cherubim and seraphim have been sentenced early too for falling for satan in the initial probation possible god has chosen not to redeem any angelic creatures who have who have sinned they will be thrown into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels How should we relate to angels? Well, firstly, to righteous angels. We tend to fall into two errors those who become obsessed with angelic creatures and then those who are kind of weirded out by them and steer clear of the subject altogether. Now scripture does tell us about their nature, their activity, etc. and therefore God wants our lives to be enriched by this limited knowledge, so aware but not focused on. We are forbidden from worshiping them or praying to them for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. A holy angel would not allow you to worship them, as with the case with John in Revelation 19. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see the men of God asking angels for help uh, or to be able to see them. Right? We can ask God to send angels to protect us, but not to visibly see them to satisfy our curiosity. As if God tests us, or sends angels to appear in human form to check up on us, the author of Hebrews wrote, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'm quite sure that many people have entertained angels unawares, others neglected angels unawares. We can learn from the activity of holy angels. We pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the holy angels respond immediately, without question, eager to do his will. They're humble, they're faithful servants. They're not jockeying for position within hierarchy. They're praising God continually, and so should we. We should be aware that they join us in worship and we should be aware that they're watching us daily are you faithful or unfaithful everything is being reported back secondly to evil angels Two errors include blaming Satan for everything and becoming fearful and lacking personal responsibility, or we fail to recognize Satan's existence and his global influence and governance. Now, in Acts, we read, "'For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, "'nor angel, nor spirits, "'but the Pharisees acknowledge them all.'" We like to knock the Pharisees, don't we? But actually, they were reasonably charismatic, believing in miracles and angels our sin is our own don't give the devil too much credit if you were late for work every day last week it's not satan it's you right not getting up early enough The epistles correct the church to change their ways with little reference to demonic spirits. Often we are the issue and need to take responsibility without blaming a demon. We are to focus on growing closer to God, deeper in faith, and that will lead us away from demonic activity. Having said that, almost all sin, particularly that which is directly working against God's order and redemptive plans contain a demonic element. The New Testament gives some warnings and guidance. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Luke 22, 31. There is real activity going on behind the scenes that we have no idea about, and great men can be lured into deceitful ideas. Jesus warned us that the seeds of the gospel sown on the path, on the hard ground, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them, Mark four fifteen. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. John 8:42 and he goes on to say you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires John 8:44 Which side are you on who are you a son or daughter of who do you love and therefore act accordingly who are you working for John is explicit by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.10 We are told that the elders of the church must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil which indicates that pride was the downfall of the devil. Now, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil, 1 Timothy 3. Paul encourages us to forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, 2 Corinthians 2 lack of forgiveness can open a door to demons and can become chains on our lives now for those that fall into his traps we pray god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will second timothy 2 Paul said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 2 Corinthians 12. God was working his purposes through this thorn, as Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. The previous chapter tells us that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds, 2 Corinthians 11. Similar to Jesus' words, you will know them by their fruit, Matthew seven sixteen. Wolves come in sheep's clothing, not wolves' clothing. In his letter to Timothy he warned of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4. Some translations say doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons attack the core tenets of the faith, such as the Trinity, Christ and his atoning work, and then on to the major distortions of the grand narrative, local rather than global flood, you know, evolutionism, Platonism, replacement theology, and then on to things such as distortion of home and church order. John's epistles warns us that those who deny that Jesus is the Christ Who denies the father and the son these have the spirit of antichrist and the antichrist to to come will deny the son Paul warned that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed or a false prophet who lies about speaking to angels such as first kings 13 i also am a prophet as you are and an angel spoke to me by the word of the lord saying bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water but he lied to him that's first kings thirteen eighteen. we must be cautious who we believe and who is speaking to them, if any. Many cults have began with, an angel told me. Okay, demon control. What does it mean to have demons? Well, they are spiritual beings who enter the body, each having an identity. Demons are able to speak and respond, and they have characteristics often of the sin that people commit. So spirits of lust and greed, spirits that identify with Jezebel or Baal and so forth. And when they enter, they can pervert attitudes, personality thought patterns physical appetites and motives and it can lead to addiction and torment and sickness and enslavement and those who have demons can start to compel sin and enslave and tempt others and deceive and manipulate and dominate accuse intimidate Now, it's helpful to remember that they are limited. Unlike God, angels do not know the secrets of the heart. They can't read minds. They don't know the future. They can only twist what they see and hear and then persuade and disrupt, uh, which is demonstrated in the occult. And if given permission, they take over bit by bit tormenting the person to the point that they seem to lose their mind like the man we read about with thousands of demons but they can't actually read the mind itself Now, when people visit mind readers um, most of which are kind of fake magicians but the real ones they're listening to demons who tell them about you what car you drive what you ate for dinner you know the family member that died they're not reading minds so much as they are relaying the demons report how How do they enter the body well evil demonic spirits can enter us through sins of our own doing or those who we are under the covering of so for example parents grandparents maybe even church leaders to the ephesians paul says do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil ephesians 4 26 he connects sinning with giving demons under the authority of the devil power to intervene yielding to temptation is the issue temptation is about satan trying to get control of our lives sinning gives him the right to areas of our lives that causes havoc man is vulnerable to temptation because satan has general control of the earth because man gave him the authority. They have, they've had a global land grab if you like, but now they're trying to grab authority over your body and therefore life. They are legalistic and opportunistic. They sow lies through deception and they can hold us captive to those lies, but they can't enter you if you don't give them an opportunity through sin. Now that doesn't mean you won't be attacked externally, even if you are blameless like Jesus and Eve, both sinless, Jesus resisted, Eve succumbed. It's a continual battle of resisting. Can Christians be possessed? The Bible uses terms such as a man who has a demon or who had demons, plural, or those oppressed by demons, and although uncommon, demon possessed. There appears to be a difference between having demons and being demon-possessed. Now, I will add that in Grudem's opinion, it never uses language that suggests that a demon actually possesses someone. Now, some believe that Christians can't have demons at all once you are in Christ. However, ministries all over the world will tell you that the people that come for deliverance are Christians. Peter is an illustration of being influenced by Satan. My understanding is that through sin, especially habitual sin, Christians can have demons, but we cannot be demon-possessed. We are God's possession as he paid the price on the cross. God takes ownership of our body, but it contains things that he wants to flush out and make clean. Just as someone who takes possession of a property and then renovates it, cutting out the rot, the woodworm, the cockroaches, calling in an agency to deliver the house from its damage and abuse. Like God using the agent of the Holy Spirit to clean us up. Now, We can't clean up ourselves before we come to the cross he perches you and takes possession of you just as you are and then he gets to work and then we must be responsive to his work and walk in newness of life jesus referred to satan as the ruler of this world but he asserted he has no claim on me If he had no claim on Christ and you are in Christ, he has no claim on you. For Christ bought us with his blood. So as Christians, we cannot be possessed by demons. We are possessed by the Holy Spirit. But we can allow demons to enter Christ's possession through sin. Then you have a battle within you. The Holy Spirit is kicking it out the door, but you keep letting it back in. In Matthew 12, Jesus uses an allegory of a man with demons to explain that the generation he was speaking to will be worse off after he is left because they would not receive him. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. On its return, it finds the house vacant, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and dwell there, and the final plight of that man is worse than the first. So will it be with this wicked generation. Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Apart from the end point that he is making, we can see the truth that a man who is delivered from a demon can later be home to many more demons if we reject Christ and his ways. Now, demonic attack or even possession does not necessarily mean that the person has no will whatsoever over their own body. As Christians, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but to God as instruments for righteousness, then sin will have no dominion over you. Romans 6, 11 to 14. I'm bemused when I hear Christians involved in yoga and reading dark books of witches and wizards or reading horoscopes, and and then they laugh when you bring up these things, but you're playing with fire. You know, some people say, well, God redeems things and we're redeeming yoga. We've learned that God doesn't redeem everything. He's gonna burn a lot of stuff. You can't just stamp a Christian sticker on Satan's forehead and call him your new redeemed best buddy. How do we get rid of them then? Well, in Luke 10, we read, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, 17 to 20. Because Jesus refused to submit to Satan, only submitting to the Father unto death, his triumphal work means that Satan has no rightful authority over those in Christ. We are not sons of Satan, but for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul became greatly annoyed at a demon in a servant girl. So he spoke to the demon and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour, Acts 16, 18. Another example is when Philip went to preach in Samaria. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out from many who had them and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. Acts 8, 7, we can cast them out in Jesus' name, confessing sins, asking for forgiveness, repenting, and on occasion addressing generational sins and asking God to break ungodly soul ties. There can be a knock-on effect from sins of our ancestors or corporate sins such as church or nation. In Nehemiah 1, the people of Israel confessed their corporate sin, which included sin of those that went before them. We, we have sinned against you. We admit that we are part of the problem so that God can demolish demonic strongholds and can use us to become part of the solution. We ask God will cleanse us and break us free from the consequences of that generational sin or corporate sin. We can be free from control by putting our houses in order, living a clean life and a holy life unto God. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. By entering a relationship with God, we are empowered to resist temptation. If you enter that relationship and abide in his word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you you free. Healing through deliverance is part of the gospel mission. Most people in the world are suffering from demonic trauma, past scars and present activity. Often they require healing through deliverance so that they can be effective in mission. The key to demonic free living is to confess sin in the name of Jesus, verbally rebuke the demons, commanding them to leave with the authority given to us and sin no more. The power of which comes from the Holy Spirit. You don't need to shout. Now think of this. If you don't want demons, starve them. Do not sin and you'll starve them out, right? They're not going to stick around long if you're worshiping God, right? They hate worship. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you are blameless before God, starve them out. We require the whole armor of God. Peter warns us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 1 Peter 5:8 8-9. For this reason, Paul exhorts us to put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after... you have done everything to stand stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace in addition to all this take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 11-17 Time does not permit, but if you're going through a spiritual battle, this passage in Ephesians 6 is a key one to study. James concurs that if we submit ourselves then to God, we can resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. Jesus swung the sword of the Spirit when tempted in the desert. When we become frustrated with government or hurtful people, remember, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10 those who stand before god under his covering can have no fear of these evil powers for we know that everyone who has been born of god does not keep on sinning but he who was born of god protects him and the evil one does not touch him first john 5 18. lastly then if jesus defeated satan how does he still have authority over the world well jesus personally defeated satan at the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him Colossians 2:15. Jesus had not sinned and so was not subject to death though he chose to lay down his life. So when Jesus died he was not under Satan's authority so death could not hold him. Satan did not overcome Jesus, Jesus refused to submit, so Satan remains under Jesus' authority. While the whole world still lies in the power of the evil one, by entering into that victory Satan has no rightful authority over us and Jesus has entrusted us with authority over the powers of darkness. We know that the time is coming when Satan and his demons will finally be dealt with once and for all and Jesus will claim his inheritance of the world and if we are children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him Romans 8:17 In closing, hopefully, you will now be more familiar with the terms used for angels, or should we say the heavenly host, their various kinds, their purpose, their activity, their order and rank, who and what Satan and his demons are, and how we should relate or not. The invisible players mean that we're in a battle, not with flesh and blood, but with dark powers who rule the earth. We must be aware of all the players of the field that God has spoken of. It's not to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn us and to enrich our lives. Now next, and I promise it will be the final part of the interlude before we turn to Genesis 3, we'll look at the visible players, namely mankind and his ordering. You don't want to miss that one keep watch pray for protection fear not may his face shine upon you